they did not want to hear anything about all this experience and all this that I that I had. They just wanted me to be a be the person that I was before I left. Hey Islanders and welcome to episode 94 of the Command of Voice. Today I speak with a previous CEO of multiple different hospitals that had over 4,000 employees. Please welcome Richard Skillman. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson and you're listening to the Camano Voice Podcast, where I interview folks around Camano Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. On this episode, I got to speak with Richard Skillman. Uh, I kind of had a chance meeting with him here at the Marketplace and started talking with him. And he actually was a CEO of, he's actually CEO of multiple different uh, hospitals or health systems um, where he was the you know CEO of over 4,000 employees. Um, and so I really wanted to get his take on what it takes in his mind to run a team and you know kind of glean a little bit from his experience as a business person. Um, what I got was way more than just that. So I ended up breaking this into two different podcasts. Uh, the first one is really going to kind of focus on Richard Skillman and his history, um, because we actually got into his, uh, beginning years, which was, um, he actually had three tours in the Vietnam war. Uh, so he talks about that, what his experience was, what it was all like for him. Um, he also has a Christian background, so going to war with a, a background of that. And so we, we get into all of those be- details and, and get into a conversation about that. And I thought it was a nice uh, starting point. And then next week, we'll come back and we'll talk really more about the business side of him running these companies um, and how he made a difference. And how do you make a difference in so many different lives of that many employees? Um, you know, I can struggle here at the marketplace with you know, just over, you know, around 30 uh, team members that we have here. And um, I can't imagine trying to manage and motivate and work with up to over 4,000. So um, anyways, it was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. I got a lot out of it. I know you guys will too. Uh, so like I said, come back next week for part two. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Richard Skillman. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with the previous CEO of Valley Health Systems. Uh, he was also the CEO of St. Jude Hospital, as well as a senior VP of operations uh, of a thousand-bed teaching hospital. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Richard Skillman. Thank you. Glad to be here, Brandon, finally. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Richard. Well, <laughs> how much time do you have? Anyway, uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I was raised outside of Philadelphia in what is known as the main line. And the main line is based on the fact that the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, went west from Philadelphia and created uh, their right-of-ways. And the main line was how the suburb developed outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And right now, it's probably one of the uh, wealthier places to be. When I was there... Uh, you could still walk around the township and some people would know you and et cetera, but now it's changed a bit. Uh, 
So anyway, I was raised outside of Philadelphia. Went to high school at Radnor High School. It's a really good place. And graduated, uh, went to Princeton University. And um, I majored in political science there. Uh, although nowadays I'm not so sure politics is a science. <laughs> so I, I just I don't quite understand it. Um, in any event, uh, I did that um, after almost flunking out being pre-med. Okay. Oh, my God. That was really something. But anyway, um, I ended up uh, graduating with a degree in political science. Okay. The so per- let me, let me stop ahead. you right there for a second. Sure. Um, so first of all, you said you went to Princeton. Yeah. Uh, how was the getting accepted there? How was getting into that? <laughs> that was, uh, well... Uh, at the, in those days, uh, when they didn't have every, every college didn't tell you you were accepted at the same time, so then you can pick. So I was I applied to Colgate, um, uh, Am- Amherst, and Princeton, and Colgate accepted me and gave me a time frame and said, "Okay, you have to let us know by that." So I had to I hadn't heard from the other two, and I had so I turned down Colgate, and then I had the same situation with Amherst. And then at some point I had to give Amherst an answer, and I said no, betting that I might get into Princeton. And and I finally did under an NROTC scholarship. Okay. And I was there for uh, the first part of my freshman year and decided I wanted to be pre-med, which was probably a pretty – well, it was an unfortunate decision because it ended up costing my family a bunch of money because I lost my scholarship. And, and um, unfortunately, my dad uh, and I didn't have the kind of relationship where he'd sit down and say, hey, son, think about what you're doing here, what it's going to impact on us. Mm-hmm. And he was in the generation that didn't say much of anything to kids. And Anyway, I ended up going to Princeton, and when I graduated, well, um, I, I I was in a public high school, small public high school. It was really good, and and I thought I was hot stuff, you know. Like I was <laughs> I was in the top five percent of the class, and I got advanced placement in French, uh, physics, and uh, math, and so I thought I was really hot stuff. So I go into Princeton, and, and all of a sudden, there there are hundreds and hundreds of men who have been at that time it was all male. Uh, who are much better trained than I am, mm-hmm. and boy, did I hit the wall. Man, I, I had to learn quickly um, humility, <laughs> and that was tough. But I, you know, when you go from being in the top part of your class and mm-hmm. advanced placement to uh, struggling to even pass, uh, because at those times they graduated on the curve, and so... If there were, if 95% of people did better than you, even though you did A-level work, you got an F because everybody else got. Wow. Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> oh, my God, that was rough. <sighs> but anyway, um, somehow I was able to uh, survive. Uh, it also was one of the loneliest times in my life because um, many of my classmates had gone to prep school. Okay. And so they came in with a certain level of uh, not only academic, uh, adva- you know, but also a sense of entitlement. And, and I wasn't that, you know. I, we were just middle-class people from Pennsylvania. And yeah. so we went to school. Anyway, um, I, you know, I, I, for some reason I survived. And I graduated and 
Uh, when I graduated, uh, because I had done ROTC for a short stint, mm-hmm. uh, the Navy had their grips on me. And they said, here, you can either go as a seaman apprentice or a seaman for two years, or you can go to officer candidate school. And I said, well, I'm going to go to OCS. So I went to officer candidate school in Newport, Rhode okay. Island. And I uh, graduated as an ensign uh, the day uh, John Kennedy got shot. Wow. Okay. Which, which was pretty emotional because I, we were on a high. We graduated. We're officers, and we get to the front gate, and the Marine is in tears, and he said they just shot the president. Wow. And that was, it was an extraordinary uh, experience, um, just amazing. But anyway, uh, we... I ended up going into the Navy, and uh, I studied. I became a legal officer through the Navy. But I was assigned to a ship out in the West Coast, and, and I'm really glad I did because that introduced me to sunshine and <laughs> <laughs> nice weather. Anyway, we at the time I entered, uh, it was early on in Vietnam, and we, we went over there to the Western Pacific, and uh, there was a Tonkin Golf incident which triggered... A, a huge escalation of the U.S. involvement there. Okay. And we were right there when it happened. Wow. And from that point forward, uh, it became, we were involved in the the war. And I had three tours over in Vietnam. Okay. Uh, and uh, spent uh, 15 months actually in the war zone itself. We did close support for Marines and all over the coast but what what was that like for you i mean you hear about oh, like of all the wars that you hear about like that one is one that stands out as a just a v- extremely difficult and like um i guess intense war because of the way it was fought like what was that exactly like for uh well i i went into the war with uh as i said a middle class upbringing uh we were churchgoers uh, we were in a strict Presbyterian, almost Calvinistic kind of thing. So that was my moral framework And when I went in there. And uh, it didn't take long for that framework to be challenged. And uh, over the three tours I went, it became increasingly challenging for me to be there because the way it, it was... <laughs> The way it was being managed from the U.S., it was as if senior officers in all branches of the military who had spent 20 years since the Second World War, you know, training to to make war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they finally got a chance to do it. It's like, okay, here we've got all these things. We've got these men and these boats and these whatever. And now we can get a chance to play war. And it... and. It, there was ne- for me, there was never a sense of, here's the objective. Here's what we're doing to achieve the objective. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was very challenging for me. Um, I felt really stuck because yeah. I, I didn't like what we were doing. It wasn't right what we were doing uh, to the Vietnamese over there. We didn't have a clear objective. Um, it, I actually, the, the hardest thing was, uh, I lost a bunch of men over there and, uh, which was not necessary. 
And it was unnecessary because we were ready to do what's needed to save them. And because of inter-service rivalry between the Navy and the Army, uh, uh, it became is intolerable. Uh, it, that was extraordinary. Uh, I can still remember the moment in time when I realized that uh, the men we were supporting were getting killed. Uh, and I couldn't do anything about it. So yeah. the, that, I, I flew out of the war zone, and 18 hours later I was by myself in the middle of Union Square in San Francisco in my khakis, by myself. Uh, and it, it, the coming home was almost as bad as the actual war experience because nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody cared what my experiences were. Uh, there was no... Here's here's a, a way to re-enter back to society. Right. So you're in you're in a war situation where you're shooting and getting shot at, and all of a sudden there you are in Union Square, and the biggest concern is who's going to win the World Series. And um, four days later, I was in front of my then wife. We subsequently divorced, but my then wife and my parents. And they wanted me to be the person I was before I left. Yeah, that's... They did not want to hear anything about all this experience and all this that I, that I had. They just wanted me to be, a, be the person that I was before I left. And, and it, took, um, it took me a decade or more to try to cope with that because I thought I was crazy. I thought I was the one. There was something wrong with me because mm -hmm. I could not do that. I couldn't be that person. Yeah. Right. You no, know, I couldn't be that person, and 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 it it was it was mind it was mind blowing. It was uh, and, and again, I there were no resources at the time. They didn't they didn't talk about PTSD. They didn't have anything like that. Right, uh, and so for all all the colleagues of mine that came back from Vietnam, you didn't go there as a unit and come back as a unit. You went over as an individual and came back as an individual. Wow. And they changed that. They've changed that now, realizing that that's not mentally healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, so when you go over as a unit, you get to share your experience, and then you come back and you have a group of people that have shared experiences. Right. I didn't. And, I, you know, at one point, uh, my dad uh, was a Princeton grad as well, and he took me back to, I went back to a football game, and I was in the stands in this football game singing the alma mater, and it was such a disconnect. Yeah. It's such an extraordinary disconnect, because not, not a month earlier, I was, we were in a war zone, and I was here. And anyway, um, the good news is... Um, I have two children from that first marriage, and uh, when they were born, they actually saved my life because they, when they were little and infants and I was holding them in my hands, mm -hmm. all of a sudden this feeling of unconditional love came surging out. And I said, oh, that's, that's a path out of here. You know, that, this is real, yeah. this kind of love. And I also knew at that point I didn't love my wife because this is what I felt for my kids. And I had nothing. 
I don't want to dwell on it too much, but the the way you survived, the way I survived over there, mm-hmm. uh, about halfway through my second tour, the way I survived is because you have two choices. You can go crazy or not, and if you do choose not to go crazy, you have to take all your feelings and stuff it in a box. You can't allow any feelings because if you did, it would be crazy-making. You, you, In order to function, you had to just stifle every emotion you had. And I didn't realize at the time what a price that was to yeah. pay because when I came back and I was faced with the, this wife that I had married between my second and third tours, and I, I had no, I was not emotionally available to anybody. Mm-hmm. And so the seeds for our dissolution were sown and... Yeah. But as I said, my two, our, our two daughters uh, were the beginning of my pathway back. And uh, eventually, I, we were divorced, and uh, um, it was, <laughs> in those days, it was really weird because um, my wife at the time thought she was going to find her freedom, so she... Well, she she had an affair with a neighbor. The neighbor moved. She said to me and the kids, I'm leaving. I'm going to follow this man who's married and has kids of his own. Mm-hmm. And I'm leaving you and the kids. And again, that was almost like the war. I mean, I had no frame of reference for that. Right. I had no frame of reference. I, you know, mothers don't abandon their kids. Right. Okay, so anyway, I, uh, I eventually lost custody of the kids and um, um, followed them. I gave up a career in hospital administration because the kids at that point were my only source of love, the only source. And there they were moving to Palo Alto. Mm. And I couldn't tolerate to be away from that. So I gave up a trajectory. I was on a really nice trajectory in my career and followed them. But I followed them, and I'm glad I did because then I met my current wife, Shireen Zalno. We've been married for over 40 years. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. And, and thank God because I found a woman, uh, a partner, who stayed with me because at the time I, I lost custody of the kids, uh, that really triggered a um, uh, dissolution of my my frame, how I could be in the world. And I actually I lost a job, and I I, I couldn't figure out how to stay in the in the, in the world. Yeah. This is part of PTSD. It's just a delayed a delayed Im- impact. But fortunately, as I said, I met Shireen, and um, in my craziest times, I mean, I I actually was suicidal at times because I couldn't I couldn't figure out. How to be in this world? It it just how can I be in this world uh, and make sense out of my experiences? Right. So anyway, uh, she was she was absolutely incredible. She gave me a gift that is so rare but so amazing. Uh, in my craziest times, when I was was I was crying and I was I was just in pain and agony, uh, she sat with me and she said, "I love you." I am not going anywhere. I'm staying here, and I'm with you. Whatever you are going through, I'm here. What what an incredible gift! Yeah, that somebody offers you that. Yeah. So anyway, she did, and and she is a big reason why I was able ultimately, uh, through the grace of God and 
some therapy and, and, and the kids and her. I was, and I can tell you the moment uh, I was in San Rafael and in the back porch, and I remember the moment where things settled down. I said, okay, I can do this. I can be here. Yeah. I can do this. And it actually led to getting back into healthcare and hospital administration. My job in Fullerton, I got back into a career trajectory again um, and uh, it saved my life. Yeah. So w- something else you touched on in there, and it's something that um, I think I mentioned on the podcast before, but uh, you know, my background is, is Christian as well. And one of the things that I've always um, kind of wrestled back and forth with, and I probably have gone back and forth on the subject a lot uh, in my head uh, personally, is Christians and war and how that reconciles. And you were mentioning in the beginning of the Vietnam uh, or throughout your tours were really challenged in that having a Christian background. Yeah. What, what was kind of the end result of that? What was kind of, how did you reconcile all of that as you were going through everything? Well, it, uh, it took me a long time to, to get back in touch with God as love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that when I was being shot at and we were shooting at people. And it, at one point when this was going on, I thought to myself, you know, there, there's, a, there's a 20-something-year-old Vietnam person over there who we're trying to kill, mm-hmm. and he's trying to kill me, and neither one of us want to be here. All we want to do is go home and be with our families. Yeah, We don't want to be doing this. So... Uh, it was it was a challenge, and, and what I didn't realize, Brandon, was um, my experiences in Vietnam resulted in me being filled with rage. I was filled with rage because we did things that were intolerable, and I was forced to be part of it, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be there. Yeah, and I didn't agree with it. It didn't fit with my ethics. Uh, it wasn't anything to do with serving my country. Um, and I ended up, and I didn't realize this, uh, that, that I was just filled with rage. And so I was angry with God. I said, you know, how can, how can what I was taught be true if this is what we're doing? Yeah. You know, and it, it didn't make any sense to me. So um, it took a long time. And, and I actually... After I got back, we experimented with some of the various denominational churches, and and organized religion per se did not meet my needs because uh, I always felt I was born on Christmas Day. Okay. I was born on Christmas Day, so growing up as a kid, having been born on Christmas Day. <laughs> You have a certain relationship with someone else who uh, his birthday is celebrated on that day. (laughs) And so I I had an early relationship with uh, Jesus in that sense. Uh, And so it it was really hard coming back uh, to to get back into... Organized religion did not meet my needs. I wanted to have a personal relationship mm-hmm. with God. 
you know, and, and I wanted to have a personal relationship, and and I couldn't find it through these organizations. And ultimately, uh, I uh, have found uh, you're familiar with the Ananda Farm and Zach and Haley, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, that spiritual path is what I fell into in the '80s, and that gave me a way of of developing and and nurturing again that my relationship to God yeah and and that has been my path and and uh, I'm so blessed with that um, so it's it's been that is also an element of my life saving you know saving my life because it's been it, it, it has become a central part of my day now yeah. And because I, uh, <laughs> turns out I almost died from heart issues that were related to Asian Orange back in Vietnam, uh, and I, I didn't know that. But um, I have learned early on. I was I was going to be the fifty year old coat and tie guy that that was great, and then the next day fell flat in his face, dead. You know, and I didn't know that. And fortunately, I I didn't. That didn't happen, but it came close. But what I'm trying to get to is every day is important to me. Mm-hmm. Every day. I don't take a single day for granted. I don't take the sunrise for granted. When I see the sunrise, I feel joy. And and when I see my wife, and when I see my kids, when I see Zach and Haley, when I see you, and um, uh, when I experience the people that are here at Camino Commons, yeah, I don't take any of that for granted. I take it for granted. Uh, the joy in the moment, and there it is, and you, you you embrace it because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. That's um, our our mission statement at the marketplace. Um, it's something that we don't, you know, we don't necessarily post it and stuff like that, but it's within our handbook, and it's what we try and teach our team as we're moving forward, um, and when we bring them on, is uh, to bring joy to the Camino Island community through food, service, and drink. Um, and it's because we don't know where people's life situations are at. We don't know um, what type of, you know, what they're coming from or what they're going to. And we have the benefit of working uh, in a place that people are choosing to come here because they want to, not because they have to. And so if they're coming to choose, if they're choosing to, um, you know, uh, do business with us um, at our place, we want them to leave more joyful than they came to us. And um, that's kind of been our mission in, 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 you know, especially through the pandemic and everything, it's been something that is, has been more forefront than, than even normal. So, Well, I, I was actually thinking about you and your team here, uh, that that is my experience of you. Oh, good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you wanted to talk a little bit about small businesses and the success of that. Uh, and I was thinking this morning uh, that the success of a small business is exactly what you're talking about, is that your customers come in and they leave feeling acknowledged, uh, respected, uh, you know, with, as you say, a little bit of more joy in their life. Mm-hmm. And so through the transactions that they have here, they come in and they leave feeling better about themselves and their day going forward and that that's a you can't have a, a better 
mission statement or objective to your work. And I think that's true for any small business. Well, a big thank you to Richard Skillman for joining me on the podcast. Remember to come back next week for part two of this episode. If you want to know more information on anything we talked about in this episode, though, you can go to commandocommons.com slash EP94. That's commandocommons.com slash EP94. Thanks for listening and see you next time.